You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We're waiting a while for the news on Deshaun Watson. In fact, we expected it before camp began, maybe even weeks ago, but we got it this morning. And now the sports world reacts to it and wonders whether there will be an appeal. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain with you as always. And Teron Davenport filling in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Got a lot of guests to come on tonight to talk about Deshaun Watson and the ruling, also to remember the great Bill Russell. But let's start with our reactions to this news today, Teron. And I'll tell you, I went on a bit of a journey. Of course, I started out frustrated with what felt like a very short ruling. Tried to figure out what kind of information disciplinary officer and independent judge Sue L. Robinson had in order to make this decision and was trying to reconcile within myself this independent arbiter that the NFL had elected to have in order to take some of that expectation off of Roger Goodell, where people complained about him being judge, jury, and executioner. And as I walked myself through the process of how the information was presented, I realized that all this new system did was make the NFL the prosecution and the NFLPA the defense. This came to me as I recognized that we were hearing about them engaging in settlement talks. And I thought, wait, if there's an independent judge who's ruling this and gets to make this decision, why would there be any settlement talks between the sides before she gets the information and gets to make a ruling? So then I kept going down that path and I realized, Tron, that the NFL thinks we're stupid. And they think by telling us that this independent judge is making this decision that we won't associate what happens with them. When in fact, the decision to give Deshaun Watson six games was based mainly on the precedent set by the league itself that previous what they call nonviolent offenders of this kind had only gotten three games. So Sue L. Robinson puts together a full ruling that says Deshaun Watson was guilty of sexual assault. Deshaun Watson did exhibit predatory behavior and did premeditated acts against these women knowing that they were unwanted and non-consensual. Here's six games because I can't do any more than that because it's already the longest ever for a non-violent offender. Problem, of course, there is her deeply flawed belief that all sexual assault is not inherently violent. If it is non-consensual and according to every definition, sexual assault is inherently a violent act. So Deshaun, Deshaun ends up getting six games because the NFL has always been terrible on these issues, and they're the ones in charge of presenting the case and setting up a CBA that allows for punishment like this. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'll say this. It's really interesting that this conclusion w was made and the whole idea that there was not going to be an appeal by the NFLPA. Uh, that one, uh, I'm curious how that came about because how could you say you're not going to appeal if you don't know how severe that the circumstances? what if she would have said it was going to be a year so that tells me there was some idea of what kind of time frame this suspension was going to be so to your point about the negotiations going on it shouldn't happen if there's an outside party that is distributing the the, the punishment so to speak so right. i i really was confused by that but then also when you talk about the NFL wanting to be able to put this off on someone else as far as the, the who's determining the length of the, the suspension, at the end of the day, Roger Goodell and the NFL still have the ability to change it if they want. So it all comes back to still having the NFL as judge, jury, and executor.
Yeah. That's the thing that's so weird about this, that they collectively bargained a process by which, in the end, if there's an appeal, it still goes right back to Roger Goodell to make that move. And I, I don't know, Teron, I'm not sure if they will appeal, because what we said leading up to this is that they likely, neither side would want to undermine the first mm-hmm. presentation with this mm-hmm. new system. Exactly. But... I do think that it was very clear in the judge's ruling that she felt like her hands were tied. It wasn't that she didn't find him to be likely guilty of of what he was accused of or that she didn't agree with the presentation that the NFL laid out. It was merely that based on precedent, she believed that the NFL should have to tell players in advance the likelihood of more severe punishment than what has previously been given out. And I find that laughable, Teron. You think Deshaun Watson would have committed fewer sexual assaults if he thought that it would be eight games instead of six. I mean, it's it's pretty ridiculous. (laughs) And the fact that the personal conduct policy says right in it that there can be aggravating or mitigating factors that will lessen or lengthen a suspension, and she does not consider 30-plus accusers over the course of 17 months to be aggravating. She, in fact, said her punishment was less because he was, quote, a first-time offender. I don't know how you get to first-time offender with 30-plus accusers. Yeah, and she also uh, felt that although he violated the personal conduct policy, there wasn't enough evidence to justify an indefinite suspension. If you remember, that was what was put on the table just three weeks to a month ago. That's what the understanding was that it was going to be indefinite, possibly even a year. And we're sitting here Mm -hmm. talking about how that will impact the Browns and just how everything would would fall into place. And and here it is six games. I I just, I'm really surprised at it only being six games, to be honest with you. I thought that it would be 12 to, to 14 games to a season possibly. Yeah. And the thing is a lot of people, are conflating the idea of of what's expected for an indictment or a criminal trial versus what the NFL has to prove for for public, you know, uh, embarrassment and, and, you know, giving the NFL a bad look. And she found that he, without a doubt, used his status as an NFL quarterback to get these women to work with him and then treated them in a way that was illegal uh, and was... Uh, bad for his reputation, the reputation of the teams he played for in the league. Uh, Mina Kimes was on NFL Live earlier, and I think she very smartly broke down something that I pointed to, which was the judge was partly hamstrung by precedent, but she also was tripped up by a deeply flawed understanding of sexual assault. I find this incredibly difficult to square with her ultimate conclusion, which was based on precedent, but also her own interpretation that what took place was not violent. Field, the CDC defines sexual violence as sexual activity where consent is not freely given. I don't understand how she felt the behavior she lies out in painstaking detail did not meet that standard. And I suspect many people who know victims of sexual violence, who have been victims themselves and survivors, Mm. probably feel the same way today. Yeah, I think that's a big part of this, Teron, is... Uh, the NFL needs to go into the CBA and change the baselines for some of these things. Because you could argue apples and oranges when you say, how come Calvin Ridley's out for a year for gambling? Or um, uh, Michael, I'm forgetting the last name, you know, insider trading, he got more games than this. Michael Vick for dogfighting. All the different kinds of things, right? 
Mm-hmm. Well, the NFL sets that up when they collectively bargain a CBA wherein the baseline punishment for these horrific crimes against women is so low. And then you leave it to a judge and they look at press and they say, well, Ezekiel Elliott got this, Ben Roethlisberger got this, Ray Rice got, you know, they look at it and it it sort of hamstrings them in terms of being able to give a punishment that doesn't feel, frankly, so icky. Yeah, it, it really is. And it, it's just... It's tough comparing these different things because, as you are, as you said, it's apples and oranges. But I just, when you see a guy get suspended a full year for fooling around on a gambling app, and then you turn around and you have this suspension, it just optically is just not good. And I, I mm-hmm. get like it's two separate circumstances but optically it's not good i i believe to myself that this was an opportunity to kind of set a precedent even that hasn't been set before to where these type of things are just simply not acceptable regardless of of you know what circumstances around this is not acceptable and you're going to be punished severely especially when you're putting such a black eye on the shield and that's something that the league really pushes right protect the shield don't bring shame upon the shield this situation brought shame upon the shield. Well, and in the ruling, they sort of argue for that. These would be extraordinary punishments for extraordinary case, the likes of which we hadn't seen before. And the judge ruled that without warning players in advance that punishment may go above and beyond what they've seen in previous cases, that it would be unfair to do so, thereby preventing them from making the statement that's required. And to your point, you have to change those baselines so that people do not have the ability to point to the optics and say, how can you value the, you know, someone smoking weed as something that will get them 70 plus games in the case of Josh Gordon and then someone assaulting multiple women as six. They have to fix those baselines so that they can punish appropriately for what we're witnessing. It's it's. Part of a whole bunch of stuff they got to get to. It's Spain and Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle motorcycle, RV, and boat insurance. Visit Progressive.com. We'll get back to this and particularly what the NFL needs to do next. But first, a larger-than-life figure passed away yesterday, and the impact that he had is still felt today. We'll discuss the life, the legacy on the court and off of Bill Russell. That's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Yeah, we're going to spend a whole lot of time today talking to Sean Watson, and rightfully so, but Bill Russell is more than deserving of our time. And a look at his historical career as one of the greatest winners in all of sport, but more importantly, what he endured to win while also fighting on behalf of social issues and for civil rights, um, I think is, is even more important. And a statement from his family said he died peacefully yesterday with his wife at his side, five-time MVP, Hall of Famer, 12-time All-Star, second all-time in rebounds. Had they been taking stats on blocks, you know he would have been up there. They didn't take those yet, nor did they have finals MVPs at the time. But, of course, now that trophy is named after him. He was also one of the first black head coaches in any major U.S. sport. Sometimes it's reported as such, but Professor Blackstone tells me otherwise. Not quite the first, but one of them. And, of course, the number that you can never hear too many times, 11 titles in 13 years with the Celtics. I mean, Teron, you start with the numbers on him because they're so unbelievable. Yeah, that is 11 titles in a 13-year period. And just to think, you know, one of the ones that he lost, you know, he got hurt and he wasn't effective for the last few games. And that could have been another one. So this is probably sports, the biggest 
the most successful, the biggest winner that sports, all of team sports has seen in, in anyone's lifetime. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And again, some of the statistics um, weren't even available yet. And so who knows what else you would have seen him on the top of lists for. But also rules were changed for him. Uh, which a lot of people don't recognize. Um, it, you know, he's one of those people that came around at the time um, where, you know, in college they they changed two rules for him, widening the lane and prohibiting basket interference, and style of play was changed. But I yes. think, and I talked about this on Around the Horn, time will pass and people will be disrespectful because they don't remember someone who was great at what they did. It happens to Wilt, it's happened to Bill, it'll happen to Michael, Sometimes I argue with teenage kids now and they don't know who Michael is or they talk about how LeBron's better. And so time will allow folks to forget how great someone was on the court. But I think an even bigger shame would be for people to forget and to not tell the story of Bill Russell as a man, Bill Russell as a civil rights activist. Yes. I-, I talked about this on Around the Horn today and, and Tony Reale kind of jokingly said that when asked how he wanted his epitaph to read, he wrote, I would keep it simple, Bill Russell, he was a man. And Tony kind of said, you know, it doesn't help much. But it immediately made me think of those moving and, and difficult to look at photos um, of the Memphis sanitation strike in 1968. And it's hundreds of black men carrying signs that just say, I am a man. And the statement was to value me as a human being. The very least I can ask of you is to see me as a full human being, as a man. And that Memphis sanitation strike ultimately changed history and and the MLK's assassination and everything that followed. But um, that's what I think he was getting at, was something that simple, is uh, for all the things that I'm fighting for and all the, the bigger issues I'm speaking to, I can't even get people to see me as that because they, they love me as a basketball player. And as soon as I'm back out in the world, I'm being, you know, watched by the FBI for my political views. I'm having people break into my home and defecate in my bed and trash my house. Um, and that's someone who couldn't possibly have done more for the city in which he lived. Yeah. And it's just amazing. You know, when you think about that, the way he was treated on the basketball court. Right. And just when he got off of it. It just, you look at how he supported the, the team, right? It's so big on the team atmosphere, whereas the one mm-hmm. time he wasn't, uh, he refused to eat because two of his other black teammates, they were gonna, weren't going to allow them to eat at the diner as well. And that just is a sign, like, to show you how much he believed in the team atmosphere. And he always would say that he was a man first and then a basketball player. Mm-hmm. And we can't talk about his off-the-field stuff without bringing up the Cleveland Summit. And I, I'm off the. I'm so used to talking football off the court <laughs> stuff without bringing up the Cleveland Summit. When you have just like that's it, almost like a Mount Rushmore of uh, black activists uh, that that played sports. You know, you have Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Lou Alcindor. We now know as, as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, that summit right there was uh, one of the. It's one of the most monumental pictures that that you yeah. can have in sports. You mentioned Kareem. He was on NBA Today talking about what he learned from Bill Russell. Well, he, he taught me uh, personally uh, that you don't have to uh, sacrifice what you want to say uh, as a man uh, from what you are invited to say as an athlete. Mm. Um, there's room for both in your life, 
and uh, you should uh, express yourself in both ways, uh, your profession and then uh, what you believe in and what is important to you as a human being and as a citizen. Those things uh, don't, don't have, have to uh, not be able to coexist. Yeah, and that coexistence is what made him who he was. Jackie McMullen was also on NBA Today and talked about what Bill Russell won in spite of. It was a terrible climate in our city, and yet its icon, its basketball icon was Bill Russell alongside Red Arback, both of whom were completely colorblind, who, unlike the city at that time, had the best record in terms of civil rights and diversity of maybe any professional sports team ever. They drafted the first black player. They fielded the first black starting five. Yeah. They hired the first black coach, which was Bill Russell. And so think about the climate within which he was operating under and how even then these people who loved him and cheered for him on Friday night were damaging and vandalizing his home on Saturday night. And, and the fact that he could handle all of that with the grace that he did is something that I admired the most. Yeah, Vincent Goodwill wrote about him and said to basically he was loved 48 minutes at a time and at best he was uh, tolerated when he was in civilian clothes in Boston. That's rude. That's, yeah, I mean, I'm almost speechless in, in, in with that because that's exactly how it was. And it reminds me of a scene from the movie Do the Right Thing where they talked about Magic Johnson. Um, can't really repeat it, but it reminded <laughs> me of that, you know, mm -hmm. just what they called Magic Johnson on the court and what they called him off of the court. And this yeah. is living proof of it. Bill Russell, RIP. What an incredible man. Coming up. What types of questions should the NFL have to answer in response to the Deshaun Watson ruling? We'll get into it. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, we are going to get some of that commentary today. Who won? Who lost? Oh, look at the beginning of the schedule. What a great six games for them to be without Watson. And unfortunately, people will move on very quickly to the football side of this without fully addressing what this means for the many victims and for other victims of crimes like this who are watching and listening and trying to parse what we in the media and others say about these acts and the judge's ruling. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Teron Davenport, filling in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Joining us now to share her thoughts, USA Today columnist who's been great covering all of this, Nancy Armour. Let's just start with your reaction when you heard today six games. Uh, white hot rage. I know yeah. I, I should have expected it because we've been hearing it, but um, I'm starting to feel like Charlie Brown with the football. Like anytime I, I convince myself the NFL is actually going to do right by women or, or even halfway right by women, something like this happens. And, you know, Sue L. Robinson has – She's got a whole lot of my rage, but most of it's safe for the NFL because if you look at her ruling, um, the NFL did the bare minimum. Like they, they, there were 66 women that Deshaun mm -hmm. Watson contacted, and the NFL presented four of them. Like mm. you're not even trying, people. Like, yeah. So yeah, I'm still very angry about this. What do you make uh, of the fact that you know the violent or threatening behavior in a workplace setting like that was left out? But it was still determined that he posed a threat. 
Yeah, he can't have massages from anybody except from a team-affiliated massage therapist. Like, that alone should tell you the guy is a predator. Um, yeah, I, Toronto, I thought that jumped out at me right away. I was like, wait a minute, where, where, where's that one? Um, along with the intimidation and harassment, because Ashley Solis said that Watson basically said to her, you got a real nice business here. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Like, so again, that's another way that the NFL fell short. You had a chance to, to basically stack violation upon violation upon violation, which could have led to a stronger suspension, a longer suspension. And the NFL didn't do it. So like, do you just not care? I mean, were you going through the motions? Like, what what is it going to take to get you to actually do something? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to reconcile, Nancy. And Nancy Armour's with us. You can follow her at NR Armour on Twitter. The NFL asks for a year suspension. They put up a presentation that seems woefully inadequate with only four women. They only spoke to 12. Uh, allegedly, they asked those women they did speak to, what were you wearing? Victim blamed them, and they were accusatory in their interviews with them. So these are the people we have presenting the case, by the way. But then in addition to that, you have a precedent set by their very own collectively bargained policy that essentially hamstrings the judge from being able to tack on more punishment. She wrote in her ruling that this was the longest punishment for a nonviolent act, which again, deeply flawed view by her that sexual assault of any kind could be nonviolent. But she uses that precedent to sort of explain that she can't go any bigger without players being told in advance that if they commit these crimes, there's a possibility for a lengthier su- sentence. It feels like the baselines need to change so that when something like this happens and they are found beyond a preponderance of evidence to be guilty, that they can do something about it. Which, and I, I completely agree with you, but it's also BS because in the personal conduct policy, it's flat out says, the NFL can't, you know, it can extend punishments beyond right. what has already been established. So that leaves a pretty wide opening. But I think if you wanted, if you do want to set a precedent, and again, the, the, the key word here is want, um, you had a perfect case here in, in terms of you have 66 women. You have a guy who, I mean, the details are disgusting. He brings his own like washcloth sized towel with him. Um, he brings NDAs with him. None of this is normal. So you have pretty much the way that I, I read the personal conduct policy. You could have dinged him on five different provisions that he violated. You could have talked to dozens and dozens and dozens upon women. And apparently, you know, supposedly the people who did the investigation were experienced prosecutors in sexual assault cases. So you could have done this again, if you wanted to. And, I raised this in the, the last version of the column that I wrote was, did they not want to try that hard because they don't want to malign the guy who, because of the contract he has, is going to be one of the faces of the NFL for the right. next decade? I mean, how can you not wonder that? Nancy, from your perspective, like through your eyes, what would have been a sufficient punishment or sufficient suspension in this case? I, you know, Kelvin Ridley is sitting out for an indefinite period of time for gambling on games that he was not even involved in. So if you want to actually take a stance, if you want to actually say, yes, we, we, we believe women, we respect women, and we're going to actually act like that, I think an indefinite suspension was warranted. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a guy 
who preyed on women, who used his position in the NFL to prey on women. If that doesn't warrant a indeterminate suspension, I don't know what does. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very hard to reconcile the language in the ruling that says that she believes he did commit sexual assault, he did have premeditated predatory behavior, and here's six games, right? It just, it, it doesn't check out. And I wonder, because this is the first time they're using this independent judge, do you believe that the NFL will find it more important not to undermine the first ruling from that system, or more important in light of the fact that almost everyone I've heard from thinks this suspension is a joke, that they need to appeal and try to have the optics and the PR side of this be that he's out for longer than that. I want to say it's going to be that it's the latter, that they recognize that, you know, if they're going to become this $25 billion industry that Roger Goodell wants, that they need their women, their female fan base, that they need women to spend money and that they recognize that, you know, aside from the fact that they should just treat women with decency and humanity. Um, but I can also see them using the, you know, the, oh, we need to respect the process as a as an excuse. Um, and maybe that's what they were hoping for in this case, that they could say that they wanted this, you know, a, an indeterminate suspension of at least a year, that they could could talk big and then not present an actual case and, and have this, you know, new new day with the NFLPA to get them off the hook. And I hate thinking that, but at this point, I don't know what else to think. What do you make of the NFLPA? I mean, they said that they were not going to appeal regardless of what the decision was. Do you think like that's kind of shady? Oh, I think it's totally shady. I mean, I understand that, that he is a member of the NFLPA and that you need to defend your players. But at the same time, there are how many hundreds of other players who are now looked at questionably because of Deshaun Watson. You know, we've had people suggest that, uh, you know, guys in the in the, the Texans locker room didn't say enough about Watson, didn't come out and and say, you know what, this is wrong. You have some players who have said this is, you know, this is wrong. This is just gross. Um, so you you've kind of impugned everybody in the NFL, every single player in the NFL because of Watson. So if you're, it's kind of the same, the same talk, discussions that we had, whether it was about Ray Rice, Ray McDonald, um, uh, Jason Brown, like any of those guys, like you are indicting all of these guys. So I, I understand where the NFLPA is coming from, but where are the other players saying, you know what, you don't speak for me or, right. or in speaking mm -hmm. for him, you're not speaking for me. Nancy, I wrote a column about that after the, the Josh Brown stuff, because there were so many players willing to go on the record about Kaepernick. Well, it's disrespectful yep. to the flag. It's disrespectful. But Josh Brown, well, he's our teammate. So even though he has admitted to domestic abuse of his wife, he is our teammate. We show up for him. And that is an element of this we don't talk about enough. In fact, we're having David Jennings Jr. on later because he wrote about this. The expectation that all of the teammates, staff members, trainers front office people are just expected now to be comfortable working alongside Deshaun Watson, understanding what we know about his predatory behavior. It's a whole other element to this. Nancy, we could keep talking, but we're out of time. Uh, we will continue to read your tremendous columns. Thank you so much for your insight. USA Today columnist Nancy Armour. Follow her at NR Armour. Thanks so much, Nancy. Thanks for having me. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Tron Davenport in for Fitz tonight. Another top wide receiver got paid, but is QB throwing to him? 
Can he prove that he can get it done? We'll see if that works out. We'll get into it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We will get back to Deshaun Watson. Lots more to get to, including our buddy Jason Fitz joining the show. See if I agreed with a little sports beat he put together earlier in the day. The fact that I'm bringing it up means the answer's probably no. We'll get to that in a little bit. It's Sarah Spain, Tron Davenport, filling in for Fitz tonight. ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. By the way, I've not forgotten that I need to do the TikTok dance. I am waiting till Fitz is back on the show with me. Uh, I don't know when that's going to happen. i got to check the schedule. But uh, I'm, I'm saved for another day on embarrassing myself in that way. Uh, we got a lot to get to today. And we got to do it the way we do it around here when time is short and stories are plenty. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. All right, I'm calling an audible on the first story because during the break, Teron was just telling us how the back of his mouth hurts right now for the show because he went to the dentist. The dentist was running late. He gave him a talking to, and potentially the dentist went a little rough in there as a result. Uh, Toronto, how, is it getting better? How are we doing right now? Yeah, I, I've had a headache since about uh, oh. nine, uh, oh, since no. about eight forty-five. So it, it's <laughs> we're we're dealing with it, but it's all good. So it had me thinking, though, that I think Dennis is one of the things you least want to uh, anger right before you're serviced by them, and so we want to ask people at Spain and Fitz, uh, at uh, Sarah Spain, and at T Davenport underscore NFL, which profession. Or person would you least like to piss off right before uh, going into their office or, or, or dealing with them in some sort of manner? So we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. Uh, all right, next story. Quickies. Over the weekend, absolutely tremendous scenes as England defeated Germany 2-1 to one in extra time to win the Euros. And they had their very own Brandy Chastain moment. Uh, took a second to check, make sure the goal was good, but then we got the shirt ripping off and the whipping around. We got players dancing on top of press tables during coach availability afterwards. And the numbers, Tehran, are absolutely incredible. 80% of all televisions in the UK on Sunday turned in um, tuned in to, to women uh, from England lifting the trophy. 17.5 million, the peak watching in the UK. 17.9 million in Germany. Just unbelievable scenes out there. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And, you know, Chloe Kelly it was her first international goal. But the thing that really stood out to me, because I've been to Wembley Stadium, they had a record crowd, 87,192 mm. people. And let me tell you, I cannot imagine how much that stadium was rocking. Because, again, I was there... And it wasn't even at full capacity, and it was jumping then for a football game, NFL, NFL game, that yeah. is. So, yeah, it had to have been an awesome experience. Tarad, quick aside that I read today that kind of blew my mind. So back in 1920, a women's soccer game in England attracted 53,000. And the popularity of that made the men who ran the country's football association so mad that they banned the women's teams starting the next year wow. for 50 years, saying that the game of football is unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. There's a ban for 50 years, and women's football started back up again with the Football Association, the sports governing body behind it, 50 years later. And here we are, setting records. If there is nothing else to prove that investment matters, but also all of the things that have been in the way of women's sports as people try to compare them to men's sports and the number of, of endorsements or money or sponsors, get out of the way. 
and, and invest and look what happens. Mm-hmm. It, it's just kind of sad to me how often we have to restart. I mean, the, the Women's Tour de France for the first time in 33 years this year had a multi-stage women's event that took six years of petitioning and fighting for after years of them not even acknowledging requests for it, there had already been a women's tour de France two previous times in history that had gotten taken out by men who didn't believe in it. It's just exhausting to keep repeating these cycles. Yeah, it is. And really, you know, on a, to, on a different note, what I'm hoping and praying for is that WNBA popularity continues to grow. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping because of how awesome this uh March Madness was, you know, for the women's basketball, I'm really hoping, and also the onslaught of, of NIL and how these women are, are getting these opportunities, this exposure. I'm hoping that rolls over to WNBA and uh, that continues to get the support that it really, really deserves. Yeah, I agree. Same goes for NWSL and the popularity of Euro soccer and the investment from NFL owners and stuff in the Professional Women's Soccer League here in the States is proving it is on the up and up. Uh, we just need people to stop poisoning the well. doesn't have to be your thing, but stop getting in the way at least. Uh, I think that's what they say. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't need them uh, to necessarily help us. We just need them to take their feet off our necks, I think is the quote. Um, that's kind of how it works in sports as well. All right, next story. Quickies. MLB trade deadline action coming in as we're on the air. The latest one is one of those trades that uh, are especially awkward. Christian Vasquez traded to the Astros, immediately pulled away by Red Sox PR while on the field, and just walks over to the Astros to start playing for them. This after the Astros already acquired Trey Mancini from the Orioles, so they're making some moves. And Teron, you said that, we were saying that's exactly how you want to get it, because you can immediately be like, all right, listen, I'm going to get in this lineup, and I'm going to make you pay for trading me right off the bat. Yeah, no doubt. It makes me think of, as a Mets fan, the Juan Samuel for Lenny Dyster trade. And it happened. <laughs> they just changed locker rooms right then and right? there. And yeah. that that has to be awkward, too. Like walking Wild. into a new locker room, like, hey, guys. Yeah, I am. hugging all your buddies and then being like, all right, going to kick your butt. Uh, also, the Brewers earlier today, uh, Josh Hader, an all-star for the fourth time this season, leading the majors with 29 saves. Shockingly, the Brewers send him to the Padres, and they get Taylor Rogers, Padres closer, who is second in the majors with saves, plus another bit of um, of, a, of a haul there. And the belief that, that the budget-conscious Brewers probably figured they could get a higher return now rather than waiting. And uh, Jeff Passan was on SportsCenter talking about the Padres trade for Hader. The San Diego Padres, Nicole, have been looking to get Josh Hader for years now. A number of teams have been trying to get him, and frankly, Milwaukee's been reticent to do so. But finally, the Padres put together a package that includes Robert Gasser, a left-handed minor league pitcher, Estiuri Ruiz, who's a young player, 23, going to be under control for years, as well as Taylor Rogers to replace him in the bullpen, and Denelson Lamette. You know who it didn't include? C.J. Abrams, Robert Hassel. James Wood and Jackson Merrill. And, and that's those significant are, because those are all players that the Washington Nationals <laughs> would love to receive in exchange <laughs> for Juan Soto. Yeah, Soto. So this says could have uh, interesting effects beyond just this trade. That Juan Soto thing is going to be something to watch. That's yeah. going to be somebody's going to empty their farm system and acquire a, a young player and. I just want to see how they're going to be able to supplement the roster around that $400 million salary Mm -hmm. that uh, he's going to have. All right, next story. Quickies. 
49ers and Debo Samuel have agreed to a three-year extension worth up to $73.5 million, $58.1 million in guarantees. Uh, so Samuel at one point had requested a trade from the Niners in April, but they figure it out. Diana Rossini talked about how this could really help Trey Lance. Debo Samuel will be the face of the security blanket in San Francisco now for Trey Lance. Just because he's able to do anything, he can handle so much. He physically can handle so much. So you add up all the characteristics that Debo brings to this offense, the comfort he has in the system, the confidence he has in the system, the things that he's willing to do, changing positions and doing anything that Kyle Shanahan asks of him. He's probably the best thing to happen to Trey Lance as he continues to grow. And I bet you, you can ask probably Jimmy Garoppolo and he would be the perfect person to tell you when you get in trouble, you can just dump the ball to him and he'll get it done. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Trey Lance is probably the happiest person besides Debo Samuel about this deal. Absolutely. And it's a thing of free yards. Right, You could throw the ball five yards to Debo Samuel, he'll take it 70, and it shows up in the stat sheet as a 75-yard touchdown. And more importantly, <laughs> it helps your team win the ball game. So that's where his importance is really going to come into effect, the yards after the catch. Yeah, 100%. And we are all very interested to see how Trey Lance is going to work out. This will probably help him a bit. Coming up, our next guest is going to help us remember his friend Bill Russell. Some memories from a great NBA player coming up next. Spain and Fitz. The podcast. Happy Monday. You're listening to Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Teron Davenport in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Fitz going to join us about 15 minutes, talk about the news of the day. But let's get to the news of the weekend, the passing of the great Bill Russell, and to talk about his friend and remember his legacy, Celtics radio color analyst, two-time NBA champion, NBA Finals MVP, Cedric Maxwell. Cedric, thanks so much for the time. We're going to talk about, yeah, we're going to talk about what a winner Bill was. We're going to talk about who he was off the court. But what's something about him that you wish more people knew about Bill that only those of you that really got to know him could share? Well, I think think he was just so funny. I think that was the big thing. And, um, you know, his humor was, was cutting edge. And part of it was something you saw all the time. And he did it in the most crazy way. Like, here's the thing he'd do. If I saw him and I smiled and I waved at him, hey, he'd always give me the middle finger. He'd always do that. It, it was just like, <laughs> he would always flip me off. I'm like, why are you doing that? And I asked him one day and he flipped me off again. He was just, he always wanted to keep you off balance. And uh, it was just, he was he was amazing. I, the only thing I hate about all this is that we're giving him his flowers now. And I like giving flowers when people are alive. Yeah, he's the great. He's the greatest winner we've ever seen. Nobody will ever do this again, ever. You know, to my Tom, Tom Brady, six championships. But Russell has 11. He won eight championships back-to-back, and he was a player coach. His accolades are just, you know, astronomical when you really look at them from afar. His accolades on the court are obviously outstanding, but I, I think equally as important is his legacy just as a civil rights activist and just – someone to have been one of the most influential people that walked this earth Uh, for you having dealt with him uh, directly. uh, What are some of the ways that he impacted you? That, that was it. 
for standing up for yourself and standing up for people around you, people who were lesser than you. Bill Russell did not have to take that course of, of being political. He could have done like a lot of other athletes have done all their lives, count their money and stay and stay in their, their place. And, but Bill Russell didn't do that. He was like, he was there. This is the crazy thing we're talking about. Bill Russell was sitting there with, with Muhammad Ali and all those great legends when they were talking about civil rights. It's a great picture of him. Bill Russell was there when Dr. Martin Luther King was speaking. I have a dream. This man is, he, he's part of history. And, and, I, and I totally agree with you. As great as he was as a basketball player, I think he was a greater person. And you can't say that about a lot of people. Talking to Cornbread Maxwell, Celtics radio color analyst, two-time NBA champ, NBA Finals MVP. You can follow him at Cedric Maxwell 81 on Twitter. To your point, I think his family clearly felt like it was very important for him to be remembered, not just as a great basketball player, but for the social issues and the civil rights issues that mattered so much to him. They really emphasized that in the in the statement about his death and um, something that his daughter Karen wrote for the New York Times in 1987 about the racism he faced in Boston has resurfaced. And I think that's one of the things that needs to carry on when people talk about him and remember him for years to come was that he won in spite of abuse from the very fans that would show up and cheer for him on the court. But then when he went home, they would spray paint his walls and poop in his bed and smash his trophies. Um, I, I can't imagine trying to reconcile showing up for work and having cheering fans and then going home and feeling that alone. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine what a lot of those guys went through. And that's why I think we have to pay homage to all of them. I think about, you know, I, I talked to Sam Jones and Sam Jones told me how he was in Fort Wayne, Indiana and with Bill and he was the first one at the lunch counter and he gets his trade and, faster than everybody else so he he goes up to the line and the woman says excuse me she said i'm sorry sir but we don't serve colors here Hmm. we don't serve colors and that to me was just like that is just where you where you basically talk about human dignity that the guy couldn't even eat in a in a restaurant bill russell protested one time where because you know his his teammates his white teammates could eat there he couldn't and i think they boycotted the game that day it's just he was he was um, he was so thoughtful and and so and I know people a lot of times say to me say Cedric Maxwell you're a legend with the Celtics I'm not a legend Bill Russell's a legend I couldn't carry that man's jock around I mean that's <laughs> what you call a legend I was having to play there I played well but Bill Russell defined the era he won he was the first black coach in a as one say a racist society in Boston, wherever it was, and had to endure that. But still, in spite of that, as you said, still won multiple championships as a player coach. That's just as hard. That's just unbelievable. When you see some of the players now, you know, whether it's LeBron James or, you know, there have been clips of Kobe Bryant just absorbing everything that Bill Russell was saying. What's that say Mm -hmm. to his legacy and just how he was so willing to impart knowledge on the younger guys? Dude, he was like your grandpa, man. You know how your grandpa say something? You'd be like, eh, I'm not sure about that, grandpa, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) And then all of a sudden you do it and you go, 
Oh, you know what? You were right, Grandpa. I've never seen, I, I have very seldom heard anybody say anything bad about Bill Russell when it came to it. Now, he was stubborn as hell. He, he had that streak in him about being stubborn and, and forthright. But I think he had to be that way in the way that he played in the situation that he was in. Yeah. You talking about Bill and some of those circumstances. I remember talking to Fergie Jenkins about traveling with the Cubs back in the day. And sometimes he and his black teammates would have to stay in funeral homes and brothels because they weren't allowed into the hotels in the spaces. And the white players would have to bring the meals onto the bus because they weren't allowed to go into the restaurant to eat. Um, It's it's wild how that feels like a long time ago. And yet it wasn't because we just lost Bill Russell. And this was his era and his time. We're talking to Cedric yeah. Maxwell, a two-time NBA champion and friend of Bill Russell. Um, when I think about us time passing and us young folks not really knowing about Wilt, not really knowing about Bill Russell, you know, ch- ch- chirping about Michael Jordan being so great and then the youngsters come along and it's all about LeBron and the next person is going to be all about, what do you hope that people keep talking about when they talk about Bill? What do you hope is his lasting legacy that people keep bringing up? I, I, I'm like everybody else, like his family. He is bigger than basketball. And here's one of the things I'm hoping that happens in the city of Boston. I mean, there's a, there's a tunnel there called the Ted Williams Tunnel. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But what Boston needs to do, there's a street that runs down the middle of Boston called Boylston Street. How about turning that thing in the Russell way? Because yeah. I think that's, that impact that he had on that city was that great. And that define and, and the more we look back on it, the 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 bigger the stage gets for him. And you could look at you said those people that absolutely absolutely love him. You can see how Michael Jordan was you know affected by him. You can see the words that he was giving up. Even Kevin Garnett, as great as Kevin Garnett was, he was there, and Bill Russell embraced him when he won his first championship. And I remember when he won at Kevin Garnett, he went to Bill Russell, they hugged, and he all of a sudden he screamed out, Bill, I got my own. I got my <laughs> own. That's the kind of mentor that he was to the younger players and the younger generation. And he knew us, and we knew him. We knew him, and not only I knew him as a basketball player, but I knew him all these other things. When I hear these stories, I got these stories from Seth Sanders. I got them from Tommy Heinsohn. I got them for, from Havlicek about really who he was, JoJo White, all these greats who have gone on now. Except uh, you just look at it and you're going, man, what a legacy this man left in his life. And, and, and I'll say this. If I could do an inch, a, a, a millimeter of what he's done in his life, or if we, if we all could do that, the world would be a much better place. Yeah. It's funny. Um, Bill, I think Bill Russell way would be great. He did end up getting a statue back in 2013, but he said about it, two things about statues. They remind me of tombstones and there's something for pigeons to crap on. So maybe, uh, maybe he'd be more appreciative of Bill Russell way, uh, than the statue. Uh, we'll keep telling those stories and keep reminding everyone about how great he was. Thank you so much for the time, Cedric. Really appreciate it. Guys, I appreciate your time and, and Bill Russell he lives forever. Thank you. He does indeed. Thank you. you can follow him at Cedric Maxwell 81. Uh, fantastic stories and memories of the great Bill Russell. Spain and Fitz. Jason Fitz going to join us next to weigh in on the Deshaun Watson rule, and it's coming up ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast.
We have enormous breaking news from the National Football League. Adam Schefter, the decision has been made. What can you tell us? Sue L. Robinson, the retired federal judge, handed down her decision. Deshaun Watson has been suspended for six games. Six games is within what the, the Browns thought in that building. They were thinking six to eight games for months. If you're in that building right now, you have to be relieved. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Tron Davenport, filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. And yet, here is Fitz joining us now after doing some time earlier with Barton Hahn today. Fitz, uh, let's talk Deshaun Watson. You and I spoke about it on that show, uh, but I've since heard your sports beat, and I'm curious when you recorded that and if you still 100% believe what you said about the process and how Sue Robinson came to this decision. Yeah, no, so I recorded the sports beat four minutes before we started Barton Hahn and felt good about it because I had heard enough that I felt, you know, really strongly as I tweeted out that we all need to understand whatever previous punishments were for other issues, for example, you know, a year off for gambling, things like that, they don't really count into this conversation because this is precedent. This is a new process. Now, uh, I've had the opportunity probably a dozen times today because I'm slow to reread the ruling. And one of the things that is fairly staggering in this ruling is while I still believe that other punishment is in its own category because the new precedent has been set, she's made it very clear in her ruling that part of the reason she wasn't comfortable with more than a six-game suspension was because the league hasn't suspended for these types of issues to that level in the past, and it would be unfair. So I think, you know, that absolutely the one thing that's changed since the beat for me is that she's made it clear in the ruling that it's the NFL's fault for prior uh, for not for not being tougher in the past that this suspension can't be tougher right now. Yeah, but don't you think like with so many cases like this, there was a precedent that could have been set. Like, do you think that like the the train was missed and and not mm-hmm. setting that precedent in, in something like this. No, 100%. The number of times the league gets things wrong is bigger than the number of times they get it right when it comes to these issues, which is why I felt like this was going to be such a fresh breath of fresh air, a new start, really, honestly. When they decided in the collective bargaining agreement that they were going to agree upon uh, a, a neutral party to come in and handle all of this, I thought, man, finally, we don't have to deal with the concept of bias in decisions. We don't have to deal with the concept of personal attachment in decisions. We just have a judge coming in and really looking at it. And I thought Amber Wilson made it a, a, an important point last week. You know, you saw that, uh, that it wasn't done before training camp. It wasn't a Friday news dump. Like, uh, the Judge Robinson has obviously shown that she doesn't care about the usual things for the NFL. So I really thought that they gave an opportunity for a new start. What we know now is that she is going to look at where they were, what was the baseline as we start the process over. And that just is another example of the NFL screwing this up. I mean, how you can in a ruling say, I think the NFL basically proved their point, but this is the most we can suspend. That at some point has to be at the league's feet. Yeah. We're talking to Jason Fitz at Spain and Fitz, Teron Davenport in for Fitz, but he's here still. It's all very confusing. Uh, I think Fitz also, you know, what we found is that at the beginning of the day, I felt the same way about this independent judge. And then the more I learned, the more I realized it essentially made the NFL a prosecutor. And so then this league that we have harangued for decades about their treatment of women and their unwillingness to take a stand with punishments for sexual assault and domestic violence was now in the driver's seat of having to prove the case against Deshaun Watson. And whether they argued publicly or to the the, the judge, 
that they wanted a year-long suspension, they still were suspect in the means by which they did it. They only had four women testify. They only spoke to 12. They harassed the women they did speak to who publicly said that they felt victim-blamed and accused for their own victimization. So this system that is supposed to make us feel like it's independent still relies on the NFL in having to be the thing we most trust to get this right. And I think that's the ultimate part of this. As much as I blame the judge for her completely bat bleep assertion that sexual assault can be nonviolent and therefore deserving of a lesser punishment, or that Deshaun Watson is a one-time offender with 30-plus accusers, or that Deshaun Watson deserves a lesser sentence because of his good community behavior, even though we know that serial and, and, and premeditated predators do those things intentionally, just like Bill Cosby did with his charitable giving. All of those things are to be blamed on her. But in the end, the NFL sets those baseline suspensions, and it makes it very difficult to ever really send a message, right? Part of the problem here, too, Sarah, is that I look at, you know, the whys in the house and we talk about transparency all the time. And I know that's a joke, considering we just watched Roger Goodell sit in front of a congressional subcommittee and, and, uh, and not answer any questions about why there was only an oral report instead of a written one from the Washington mm -hmm. football team. So I understand that this is like, what am I expecting other than beating my head against a wall? But there has to be some element of why like the real question that that i keep thinking all day when i read this is how is it possible that jenny rentis in the new york times has done a more thorough investigation than the nfl mm -hmm. given the resources the nfl has available they can do whatever they want on and off the record when it comes to getting every ounce of information i say it all the time they do it about players that are coming through the draft process every year they hire private investigators they go through all of this sleuthing to get every ounce of information here they're like well we can only talk to a certain number of people why? I, I, this is the moment where if the league could come out and tell us why they investigated it the way they did, how they investigated it, who they didn't talk to, and why, if they could give us some transparent information, I could give them benefit of the doubt. But because they don't do any of that, they don't deserve any of that benefit of the doubt in my mind. And to your point, now we have a half-assed case being presented to a judge as fact, and we're suddenly expecting the judge to be able to read between the lines, knowing right. that she can only take into account, as she said in her decision, she can only take into account the evidence that she is presenting. And it's the same thing with the indictments, actually. What we were told is that several women showed up willing to speak. They only heard from one. We were told that Rusty Hardin, uh, Deshaun Watson's lawyer, had plenty of emails, texts, and phone calls with the prosecutor in charge of that indictment and had conversations that were outside the norm of what would be expected for that particular relationship. So there's any number of reasons to doubt what has gone down and to be reminded yet again that if you have enough money and status, you are more likely to skate on these things. And that's ultimately what we've learned from this. Fitz, uh, we appreciate your time. We have a final question for you, 30 seconds or less. What is the service, office, or person that you least want to piss off before you're going to see them? Tehran accidentally made his dentist mad today. Oh, my God. What were you thinking? Dude? No, for me, it's mechanic. I never want to make Ooh. my mechanic mad because I don't know anything about cars. So if they just come in and hit one thing, I'm just going to sit there and be like, microchip's bad. Got to buy a new one. Like, I have no right. idea. Right, right, right. I have right. no idea. That's going to be uh, $23,000. All Perfect. right. Take my Sure, money. that That's sounds me. right. Uh, good answer, Fitz. Hey, have a good night. Thanks, dude. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Spain and Fitz is presented by Progressive Insurance. And now a no-frills ad brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Here it is. You can say big when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive. That's it.
deep. Just a good old-fashioned, straightforward ad. See if you could save at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE or progressive.com. Thanks to Jason Fitz for joining us. You can follow him at Jason Fitz. Coming up, David Dennis Jr. going to join us to continue our discussion on Deshaun Watson and what's expected of his teammates going forward. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Teron Davenport filling in for Fitz tonight with me, Sarah Spain. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. David Dennis Jr. and Scape, senior writer, fellow around the horn panelist, joins us now. Hey, real quick, your barber answer was a good one. Someone you don't want to piss yeah. off before seeing them. Your barber, that's right. Yeah, you never never want to double cross, never want to cross the barber. They will jack you up and you 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 lost. You have no there's no nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Let's talk about this Deshaun Watson thing. And the reason I wanted to bring you on. Uh, We'll get to your reaction to today, but you had written a story that I've talked about in the past and doesn't get a lot of traction because people sort of shrug and just say it's sports. That's what happens. But the expectation for all of his teammates, staff members, trainers, therapists, massage therapists, front office folks to just accept that they now work with a guy that has been credibly proven to have premeditated predatory behavior of sexual assault. Like there's got to be some more discussion around that. Yeah, I mean the the problem here is that we just we've just come as a society to accept things as a given, right? And especially when we talk about the article I wrote, it, it was really about the players, the people who share locker rooms with Deshaun Watson. Like there is an entirety of things that have gone wrong for this to happen. There is an entire you know cultivation of rape culture that has allowed Deshaun Watson to get the contract that he has, and we, obviously there's a lot of space to talk about that. But we just sort of accept that the players that share a locker room with him just want to win and want to get a Super Bowl and they will, you know, overlook these things. But that does not have to be the case. Like, aren't these guys, like, aren't there girl dads in these locker rooms, these guys who proclaim to be girl dads? Like, are you okay sharing a locker room with a guy who, like you said, has been credibly accused and proven to have sexually assaulted women? Like, two dozen women have come forward and you are okay sharing the space with him winning with him, you know, sharing drinks, going to preseason vacations with him. Like, we can hold everybody to the fire of this and not just assume that people are going to go along because that's what they've done so far. To your point with that, just to take it a step further, uh, you were on Debatable and, and you made a point about how some of the language in here just followed a precedent of historically bad treatment to, to black women. Can you expand uh, upon that? Yeah, so I was, you know, one thing that I I think we need to address here is that we do not know everything and the identities of all these women, but we do know from the New York Times report that Deshaun Watson, one of his lines that he was using was that he wanted to support black business. He would tell these women, I want to support black business. And some of the women even pushed back and said, you can't treat black women like this. So there are some number of these women who are black women who Deshaun Watson is doing this to. And as we know, societally, these are the women who we who we treat the worst. Right. And it bothers me that we have um, not enough discussion of the fact that a white woman judge ruled that she believed that what he did, you know, that he did a lot of the lewd things that he was accused of, um, you know, forced himself on women. And the idea that this was not violent seems to follow a very American precedent of allowing torturous things to happen to black women and 
um, people in power, including white women, including white judges, saying that this does not raise to the level of violence. So there is that racial component to the decision that needs to be addressed. What she said outlined violence against women, but something in the translation allowed her to conclude that this was not um, to the level of violence. So something is not adding up, and we have to take in the historical um, you know, facts into, into this case also. David Dennis Jr. of Anscape is with us. You can follow him at David DTSS. Yeah, I mean, that's part of this whole conversation is a historical precedent of white women accusing black women, black men of sexual assault, often erroneously, and the court system erring on the side of 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 white women in those situations. You have to consider that. You have to consider when you look at the indictment that you would believe in Texas that a black man would be likely to be indicted without much evidence. But you have to carry that alongside the rest of the facts that we have, which are the relationship between Deshaun's lawyer and the prosecutor assigned to those grand jury cases. The fact that multiple women showed up wanting to testify and they only called one. The fact that there was weird packets of information being sent back and forth from from Deshaun Watson's camp and the information that we now have about the way the NFL presented this case to Judge Robinson. All of these things have to be considered. It's not an easy case. And it ends up in a place where he gets six games and I and I want to go back to what we started with because you talked about how so many things have to fail in order for this just expected response to this to be everybody forget about it and become a good teammate. I, I also see this with Hall of Famers who give speeches about their single moms who have five kids that they work so hard to raise and I wouldn't be here without her. And some of those same people being accused or admitting to domestic violence and not being able to see the women in their life as the same as their mom. You talk about girl dads. There is this sort of sectioning off of which women are deserving of our fair treatment and which ones we can excuse when we want to abuse or or take advantage of. And it feels like in this case, these women are the kind of women that society says they're not deserving of, of fair treatment and respect. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of discussion of the women in our, in, in our lives and I've heard all day, you know, men talking about this and saying, well, I have a wife, I have a daughter, I have sisters, whatever. I don't want this to happen to them. But there's the other side of this is that you have brothers and sons, and I'm watching kids, you know, boys, you know, take, accept uh, signed cleats, like parents are bringing their boys to get signed Deshaun mm-hmm. Watson. Uh, memorabilia while he's at practice and don't you want to raise a son that does not do these things like I understand you want to want to raise daughters um, who are not you know victimized by this but in a lot of ways that's not something that that you or they can control what you can control is the type of boys that you raise that does Mm -hmm. not do these things to these women and Mm -hmm. these are these are the things that that men have to focus on like how do you look your son in the eye and tell him i do not agree you know treat women right treat your mother right and you are partnering or hiring or hanging out with this guy who has these accusations and these proven instances hang over his head from the league perspective uh, do you feel that this ruling uh, has really like it failed to show that they stand by women and even worse is that something that you feel is a standard that, that they've set? 
Well, you know, I, I, I did mention this also on, on debatable is that I, that failure indicates that you have a goal and you did not reach that goal, right? So the NFL, the idea that they failed to um, support or prevent these things from happening to women or failed to stand by women, um, that does not work here because the NFL never had that as a goal. That's not the NFL's goal. They never have been about standing by women. The NFL's goal is to make sure that owners make as much money as possible. And part of that goal is making sure that they have money-making players on their rosters who can win. And Deshaun Watson fits into that goal. So there was, you know, the NFL is, is essentially a broken system because there is nothing, there is no apparatus within the NFL that says we are going to stop these things from happening. We are going to make sure that women are safer than they would otherwise be. I mean, you, she has the ruling in here that Deshaun Watson can only, you know, receive massage therapy from employees of the Cleveland Browns. And the question is, did she check with those employees if they were <laughs> yeah. comfortable right. um, dealing right. with this? Did she ask them? And if we're talking about people who are more likely to be victimized, it's the people who work for the Cleveland Browns. You do like how are you going to go to HR and say that your yeah. two hundred thirty million dollar guy mm-hmm. is assaulting me, and I'm going to and, and knowing that two dozen other women were silenced by it. So this does nothing to protect any women because the NFL has never been about protecting women. Tron, it's so right because the very same system that was in place for the Texans to help him set up massages, write an NDA, and then have spaces to perform them in are the people that we now expect to do right by whoever works for the team that will be providing the massage. This is also in the ruling something that she almost explicitly says, since you only offered me fines and suspensions as possible punishments, I'm going to suggest this, which leads me to believe that that's not enforceable in any way. She can say she thinks that would happen, but she's not under any power to be able to force him to only get massages there. It's all baked in. It's the same way that creating this quote-unquote lesser category of sexual assault that she deemed nonviolent allows her to give him fewer games punishment because the NFL has decided that sexual assault is not violent and that you can only get X amount of games for it, which is always going to be less than insider trading or gambling or PEDs or marijuana or any number of things that they collectively bargained as a bigger deal than sexually assaulting multiple women. So to your point, the system is rotten. We're setting it up for failure when we tell you you need to go to the women that work for the team that prizes and prioritizes a man that they knew when they signed him was being accused by 30-plus women. It's Oh, it's depressing is really what it is every single time. Like somebody said earlier, Nancy Armour feels like Charlie Brown with the football over and over again. Uh, David, thank you so much for the insight. Appreciate the time. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. David Dennis Jr., senior writer for Anscape around the Horn panelist. You can follow him at David DTSS. Coming up, what are the repercussions on the field with Deshaun Watson being out for six games? And what's the decision now for the NFL on an appeal or not. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Tron Davenport made a big mistake this morning. Got to his dentist. The dentist was running late. And instead of just letting it slide, he gave him a talking to. And he felt it when the dentist did the cleaning. <laughs> a little extra, a little extra twisting and turning of the of the of the cleaning supplies. 
and now he's got a sore mouth. So we asked you about it. It's Bain and Fitz, Tron Davenport, in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Who is the person or service you least want to make mad right before going to see them? You guys had some some really good answers. Uh, urologist. Yep, that's no good. Uh, definitely barbers. Um, uh, somebody said gastroenterologist. Didn't know that they were going to go deep with me. Luckily, I'm good for another decade. Uh, a waiter. Anyone serving you food is a good one. Uh, my wife. She's more dangerous than any other I can think of. Fair. <laughs> Uh, a lot of proctologists, DMV, they can have you all day if, if they want. Auto mechanics are a great one because you really can't fix it yourself. You're at the mercy of those guys. Anyone handling your food? Uh, let's see. Auto repair shop. Yeah, hairdresser, barber, judge. That's a good one. Ooh. Judge for sure. Yeah, that's um, a really good one. St. Peter. <laughs> that's a deep, deep thought there. Don't want to make St. Peter mad. Uh, the technician putting in your catheter. Ooh, okay. All right, now and, you got me squirming. Yeah, gynecologist. Yeah, that's 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 clearly one as well. Uh, well, hopefully uh, the Advil's hitting and you're feeling better now from this morning, Teron. Uh, you can follow him at T Davenport underscore NFL. He's been filling in for Fitz all night. We've been talking a lot about the Deshaun Watson ruling. Cynics, Teron, would tell you that the NFL – looked at the schedule when they were making it at the beginning of the season, and they thought, mm, let's set up the Browns and Watson for success. If he misses just six games, it's the Panthers, Jets, Steelers, Falcons, Chargers, and Patriots. That is a pretty easy 4-2, and two, if not 5-1 and one record, if, if they, you know, do okay with Jacoby Brissett. And after that? You got Ravens, Bengals, Dolphins, Bills, Bucks. I mean, that schedule, again, if you're a cynic or a conspiracy theorist, sure looks like they set him up to get a, a handful of wins off the top, even if Deshaun's out. Yeah, and with the suspension being only, you know, six games, I mean, this team could go three and three and still be in contention. Like, you got to put them back in the mix of teams that have a good shot of winning the, the – the conference, you know, because mm-hmm. with Watson in tow and, and with all the things that they have around, remember they added Amari Cooper as well. So there's a lot coming into play. This team is, is a pretty talented team, but I just wonder how they're going to handle the the distractions, right? How, they, how are they going to handle this situation as it continues to, you know, just kind of not unfold, but just have its black cloud over the organization. Well, owners D and Jimmy Haslam seem to want to get the repairing of his reputation going right away. Part of the statement they released today. We know Deshaun is remorseful that this situation has caused much heartache to many and he will continue the work needed to show who he is on and off the field and we will continue to support him. Pretty much everyone has pointed out that he is in no way seemed remorseful. He has denied his actions at every turn. He has said he regrets nothing. He has been defiant in every way, even though there are text messages where he apologizes to one of the women for making her cry and end the session early after she alleges that he touched her with his penis. And yet he's very remorseful, despite us not hearing from him since August 14th when he's or uh, whatever, April 14th, where he said he didn't do anything wrong. And yet here we have former players as well taking up the cause for him. Fred Taylor was on Get Up, former Jaguars running back who wants us all to know how bad Deshaun feels. 
I talked to Deshaun, and his biggest thing is um, he just wanted to get out there that he is remorseful. I know they mentioned this morning that mm -hmm. he has to show contrition. Yeah. He has done that, maybe not publicly so much, but he has shown that in our conversations. He has also expressed that a lot of people have jumped ship on him. So he's been very isolated for more than the past year and some change. So uh, he wants to get this behind him, you know, but I think it'll continue to be a distraction throughout the season and maybe even for the rest of his career in life as he walks around the public because as, as Ryan said, a lot of emotions are involved. You have some people that are playing jury that are gonna see him in the public and they're gonna say, well, that was wrong. You should have got more. You should have done this or that. Yeah. So the empathy we're supposed to have for him is people have jumped ship after finding out he's a serial predator. That checks out. Uh, he wants to be remorseful, but only privately. He doesn't want to say anything publicly. Okay, well, good luck getting us to feel like you're contrite. I mean, Teron, part of the issue that I have across all sports with punishments for things like domestic violence and sexual assault is that recidivism is incredibly common. And we're supposed to presume that Punishment for PR's sake, where you can go out and tell everyone this player is suspended or fined or whatever, is somehow going to fix the root cause of their behavior. We're never given transparency in terms of, are they in counseling? Are they doing any work? Are they working with peers to understand the flaws in the way they handle their issues? Oftentimes we're told they're going to anger management, even though everyone will tell you that intimate partner violence and sexual assault are not about horniness or sexual addiction and they are not about rage they are about power and control and until you get to the bottom of why someone would want to trap 60 plus women in an intimate situation where you're naked and you're using your power and ability to control them and saying i'm not paying you unless you sign this or i'm not paying you unless you massage this part of me or i'm going to ejaculate on you or force you to perform oral sex if you want to do that repeatedly over and over to unsuspecting women there is something there that needs to be fixed that isn't going to be fixed by sitting out six games. Yeah, that's a therapy standpoint. Like, that's something that has to be taken up in therapy because, I mean, to your point, some of the things that, you know, have, have reportedly happened are, are it, it's not normal. That's really the bottom line. It's not normal. And anytime something is, isn't normal, the best solution is to seek counseling for it. And that's something that I hope he does just on his own because it, it is something that, that he has to resolve. Yeah, and I think that it needs to be a part of what teams do in cases like this. They cannot trot these players out and ask for their fans to cheer for them and root for them and support them without doing some accountability when it comes to why they should have any belief that he's stopped that behavior. There's just no reason to believe he's never owned up to it. The closest we've got is the text messages that he sent and the fact that his lawyer went on a radio show and said every single guy has tried to get a happy ending. That is literally what his lawyer said on a sports radio show. Jeez. Essentially admitting, well, he didn't do anything wrong, but everybody goes to massage therapists and tries to get a happy ending. No, that's illegal, actually. That's a crime. It's part of the- That's, part of that's the, saying a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm stuck on And yet that here one. we are, people still arguing that he didn't do it. It's all a big conspiracy. And the NFL allows that to happen. And until sponsors pull out and until money starts to be affected, they will continue to not give a gosh darn about women. And we've proven it over and over. Freddie and Fitzsimmons coming up next. Stick with it. Thanks to Tehran for filling in today. Appreciate it. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. No jokes today.
think they'll just be covering these topics. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.